You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulo. This is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature Podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Richard and I were just talking yesterday about the school you created. People try to classify it, and I think every classification falls short because on the one hand, you're in the Antiochian school in the sense that you are ruthless in your fierce, strict dedication to the content of the text. You don't stray outside those boundaries. But at the same time, you deal with the Bible in totality as a whole, not as different chunks and pieces and fragments on the garage floor, but as a systematic whole. And so I think this discussion of hypertextuality is extremely important to us. And we're looking forward to hearing you delve into this topic this morning, Father. Thank you very much, Father Mark. We're going to speak about intertextuality and hypertextuality, intertextuality is much more known. But then it reminds me of the times when some students would say, why don't you, Father Paul, in your first class, tell us about your methodology? And that is very dangerous because then people, as they do, we all do, when I say people, I include myself, they perceive what they perceive of what you said. And then they start comparing you to other people or say, oh, now we understand Father Paul is following this approach. And the word approach is satanic for me because it is linked very often to the orthodox approach of the Bible, the Lutheran approach of the Bible, the Roman Catholic approach of the Bible. And then, you know, you're pinned down. Well, I don't subscribe to this approach and so on. This is a cheap way out. That is why I'm apologetic. I don't like to use technical terminology in this sense about the total approach or explain to you my approach because ultimately you have a small text on a Sunday morning at liturgy. You read a passage in Greek. You have perikopi, which is to cut around. You take a piece out and you start speaking and then there is a message there. Let's go directly to a parable. A parable is complete in its own self and it has a message. But then it's also part of a chapter which is part of a book and so on and so forth. But you know, in scholarship, people tend to use technicalities to make things easier, especially for the scholar when they are speaking together. So here again, I don't mind if one uses technical terminology among scholars. It reminds me of the times when I would be visiting my cardiologist and suddenly he receives a phone call from his colleague and he starts conversing with the colleague in a language that I cannot follow. But in 30 seconds, they say, okay, thank you very much. Thank you for... They speak a language between themselves, but when they speak with their patients, they need to flesh it out. You know, you speak regular language. So this caveat being said, I believe that one should discuss it because it is used and I myself, one could say that I use ultimately hypertextuality. 
But let's explain these two words, and then I'm going to appeal to another scholar who uses it systematically, and that will help us to understand. Intertextuality has been known and used for a long, long time. It's clear you have a text that is large, and then within this text you have smaller texts, and one can see connections between them. Let's say, just to simplify, a very impressive example. In the parable of the three slaves that were handed coins, the last one, we are told that he should have given the money, the one talent, to the bank, and in another gospel, to the bankers. And here people go into banking and so on. But this is not what it means. The original word in Greek is trapeza, table, and it boils down to table fellowship. You have to have taken care of the needy people, period. is very simple. But notice how two authors look at Matthew, use two different words, which help us to figure out the background. It's very interesting. So they are not saying two different things. But then beyond that, you know, we have almost the same word in other places, allusions and so on. Let's say an author quotes another book, not verbatim and so on and so forth. This approach is very important because it shows us the relationship between two different self-standing books of the Bible, and it points already towards what one might call the oneness of the Bible, like the oneness of the four Gospels, the oneness of the Pauline letters. But again, and let's keep this in mind because I'm going to revisit it in speaking of hypertextuality, one has to show that. Now, hypertextuality, it is a word that was used to speak of a hypertext that relates to a hypotext text before it, below, and with development. Its importance, in my eyes, lies in showing that the entire Bible is tightly knit, interrelated, not only simply by allusions, any word there, any word there, but on a larger level of the total story. And that is very important. Obviously, I am biased. It's very important because it is the closest of what I have discovered. Here again, it's very important to realize that one cannot begin with a thesis, prove it, and then apply it just like that freely by sometimes forcing the text. That is why most of the people who use hypertextuality are critiqued, that sometimes they push the issue to force their total thesis on the text. And this is where things become dangerous. Now, let me jump immediately to, I consider him a colleague and very close, although we never met. He is a young Roman Catholic Polish priest and scholar who wrote a lot of books on both the New and the Old Testament. That's another reason why I appreciate him. It's like me. I mean, he's professor of New Testament, but he wrote on both, mainly New Testament. Myself, by the title, I'm professor of Old Testament, but I wrote on both. It's very important to know the entire Bible. He uses systematically this approach, and you could hear it 
in the subtitle of his books, The Gospel of Mark. His name is Bartos Adamzuski. The Gospel of Mark, colon, a hypertextual commentary. The Gospel of Matthew, a hypertextual commentary. The Gospel of Luke, a hypertextual commentary. But interestingly, and this is one of his earlier books, earlier in the sense that it was done before Matthew, the title is Retelling the Law, Genesis, Exodus through Numbers, and Samuel through Kings, as sequential hypertextual reworkings of Deuteronomy. Impressive. Now, it doesn't matter whether you agree with him on every page and so on. This is what critics do. Oh, here he's pushing it too much. But it doesn't matter. You have to follow and see to which extent this basically makes sense. Namely, that the authors of Genesis and then Exodus through Numbers, which is the four books, are reworking or reworkings of Deuteronomy. And that Samuel through Kings is also a reworking. And notice in the subtitle of this book, he says sequential hypertextual reworkings. And here I need to jump to his latest, The Gospel of Matthew, which was published this year. And he honored me by sending me a copy of Matthew. Earlier, he sent me a copy of Mark. In Matthew, and you could read this on the back cover of his book, this monograph presents an entirely new solution to the synoptic problem. It demonstrates that the acts of the apostles functioned as the structure giving hypotext for the Gospel of Matthew. Accordingly, the Gospel of Matthew as a reworking of not only the Gospel of Luke, and here I would like to put a footnote immediately, he and I are among the minority who are totally convinced that Matthew was written after Luke, whereas the majority of the scholars like to opt for Luke after Matthew. But notice the importance of this book, because it shows that Matthew, in a strictly sequential way, is a reworking of the Acts of the Apostles. That is fantastic, because earlier he, as I and many people, say that the Gospels are reworkings of the Pauline letters. Now Adamzuski pushes the issue by applying the same thesis to the Acts of the Apostles, which is a description of the Pauline activity. It's different than the Gospels. You know. But Adamzuski is proposing to show that Matthew, and I read the book, very impressive, where he shows a sequential use of the Acts of the Apostles. So Adam Zeus's work on the level of hypertextuality is not just thoughts that you can show that there are there, because then you are technically still on the level of intertextuality. But when he stresses the sequence, I mean very forcefully, 
here again, you know, here and there you could say, well, he's really pushing it to make his point and so on and so forth. Let me jump and say that his book on Luke proposes to show that the Gospel of Luke is a sequential hypertextual reworking of the letter to the Galatians. So one has really to understand what hypertextuality is. And to my mind, I'm not saying he is the only one who does that, but to my knowledge, he is the one who systematically does that, namely to show that there is a sequential using. Like he begins with chapter 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, and he moves to chapter 28, and he shows that Matthew follows that sequence in his stories, which is tremendous. And I think, Father Mark, you should add this book to the announcements on the OCAB's web. Anyway, so that is hypertextuality. Now, from the perspective of my work, and I believe that that was your intent to ask me specifically about my use of hypertextuality, although I never use that word, as I said, but let me jump into my rise of scripture, my thesis. I began many, many years ago by saying that Genesis is the book of books. It imposes itself on the rest of the Bible. All the important, quote-unquote, theological terminology is already found in Genesis. But then, slowly on, I realized something that stunned all of you. I tried to show you that the entire message of the Bible is already fully present in detail in Genesis 1 through 11, which is very important for my total theory that the Bible is not interested in Israel proper, but in all the nations. And that becomes very important because Abram does not appear until the end of chapter 11 as a member of the Toledot, the genealogy of Terah, and not of Shem, technically. Obviously, Terah is the last person into the genealogy of Shem, but he begins his own genealogy. So until mid-chapter 11, we have the nations. Shem is one of the three children of Noah. But then, <laughs> while working on the book, just to show you that it is not enough to assume a thesis and try to find it, because you're going to find it. I mean, if you're convinced and you can show it. But lo and behold, when I worked on the book, I myself was stunned that the entire biblical message is already present in Genesis 1 through 4. The joke about this is Father Timothy Lowe, my very good friend since 77. He was my first student in the U.S., he said, you know why I love you, Father Paul, because after the session, I decided to read only Genesis 1 through 11. But now, you know, I don't need to read 5 through 11. 1 through 4 is enough. Obviously, the joke is on him, meaning that to understand 1 through 4, he has to know the rest of the Bible. <laughs> but that was very impressive, and I defended it ferociously in my book, and I'm totally convinced of that. Does this in itself has a value you cannot say beforehand. But then, if I point out to you that please notice that Genesis 1 through 4, and this is 
the basis for my criticism of all scholars. They mixed between Adam in Genesis 1 through 4 with Adam in Genesis 5. But the author of Genesis is very cunning. He presents 1 through 4 as the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. And in chapter 5, he says, this is the book of the Toledot of Adam. So specifically, he's pointing out to you that he's moving to another Toledot. It's the only time where he uses the word book before Toledot. In other words, he's telling you, we are moving to another topic, which means one through four is about the entire heavens and earth. Heavens is beyond our reach. So basically, it's earth as a totality where you have humans, animals, and vegetation, which is the heart of the last verse of Genesis 1. You could tell I'm getting excited. It's very powerful, but that I discovered. It's not that I imposed. This is where one has to be very careful between imposing and discovering. And after you discover, you have to show that is there. And I spent lots of pages on that. So my other conclusion, let's go to Adamzuski first. He uses the fact that Matthew is a sequential hypertextual reworking of the Acts to conclude if Acts is the work also of the author of Luke, then Matthew was then after Luke. I did something similar, but on a much deeper level, mainly if Genesis 1 through 4, and the if as I always say, is for my hearer, not for me. That's why people misunderstand me when I say, if, no, that's my conviction. But I cannot impose it on you. I say, if, to invite you to follow my reasoning and do serious work, to see it for yourself, but then if you don't know Hebrew, you'll never be able to see it for yourself. That the ultimate interest of Elohim, and here again in my book, I split between Elohim and Yahweh. They are not equal. In Genesis 1, you have strictly Elohim until 2.4. And then you have Yahweh Elohim systematically in 2.3, and they are split only in chapter 4. But that's another topic. Let's stick with our hypertextuality. If indeed, and for me, it is so that the whole Bible is already in the Toledot of the heavens and earth, the whole, if you like, world, universe, the Bible creation of God and so on. Actually, the Bible says it's the creation of God. Then all this ridiculous anthropological approach to theology that was started very early with Justin, the philosopher, and then through the Alexandrian school, seeped in all theology, is really, I said ridiculous, actually is sacrilegious to somehow say that the human being is at the center of the world. And you know what happened when people assumed that the universe was geocentric and the earth is anthropocentric and so on. It's just you're looking at your navel. And what is sad, and here I'm getting really not only excited, but uneasy, that one is misconstruing the message of the text. That is the issue. Whether you agree with the text or not is secondary. That's your choice. 
But the text remains. It's a standing it, as I say at the end of my book. So to come back to Genesis 1 through 4, if indeed everything is already there and the author underscores this by beginning another book in chapter 5, then the whole issue becomes important when we hear later that the human being had to send an animal that flies to check on the vegetation of the earth as a sign of God's grace to him the human being, it has a different connotation to your ear than say, oh, well, God was interested in the human beings and saved them. But then why did Noah take all those animals? But this thing about the human, animal, and vegetation is already present at the end of chapter 1, where God assigns the human being to be responsible. So he is responsible. The animals are not. But he is responsible for what? For securing the vegetation that is intended to feed him or them, the male and the female, and the animals. They are together. That's why in retrospective, you see what happens is that you go back and you say, wait a minute, let me check on the text. Is it correct what theology in general said that man was special because he was created on the sixth day? But the funny thing is that on the sixth day, it is the animals and the human beings that were created, the earthly mammals. Because what's the human being is another earthly mammal. You see what happens here, that you start going back and forth. You go back from one, two, three, four, three, two, one, and so on, to review whether you heard correctly the message or not. Let me read you the text at the end of chapter one. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth. Notice you have the mention of a human being, the vegetation, and then the inclusion of every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth. And you see how intelligent the author is. He doesn't refer to the animals of the sea because they take care of themselves. The human being does not live in the sea. He lives on the earth. I have given every plant, and it was so. And it is only then that God saw and behold it was very good. So when theology tells you, he said it was very good when he looked at the human being he created. It's a vain talk. You're looking at your navel. The statement that everything was very good, very, notice the addition of very good at that time, is in verse 31, which follows 29 and 30, which I have read to you. So to recap, if what I'm saying is hypertextuality, I have no problem with that. <laughs> but to say, oh, so hypertextuality is the hermeneutical key. I know there is a colleague of mine who loves that. It's as though you have a key, you put it and in at lock all that. Uh, and obviously for that person, as for whole theology, he didn't discover it, it was said from the beginning that Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key. 
And at every other verse, you have to find Christ. The one who was seated on the mountain speaking with Moses was already Christ. Isaac was already Christ. And worst of all, that Job was already Christ. Job was a silly, self-righteous. How could you say that Jesus is like Job? Later, we hear an epistle that we should learn patience from Job, but at no time the New Testament says that. So it's really very serious, and let's call it hypertextuality, at least from my perspective, in honor of Professor Adam Zuski. And I would recommend that people would read at least one of his books. The latest would be the most impressive, I mean, before him, never as anyone wrote, perhaps people have mentioned that Matthew uses the Acts of the Apostles. But, and let me wrap up, his commentary on Matthew is very tiring, tedious. I bet you anyone who makes any comment has not read the work by Adam Zeus tediously, tediously, passage after passage. He tries whether he succeeds every time or not, we can decide. But this is what he does. And he works on words very much as I do in my book. He shows you that it is the same word that is used here and there. So I wanted to stress the seriousness of the matter when we hit that word hypertextuality. Because what I dislike mostly in theology is generalization under the spell of Plato, not Aristotle. There is an eternal horse somewhere. And the horses down here are a reflection. And you know my joke in the classroom, I said, <laughs> you know, I can't say I'm convinced, but at least I hope that my car, the Toyota, is not a reflection of an eternal Toyota. Otherwise, if something goes wrong, my mechanic cannot do anything about it. That's why theology is very dangerous. It takes you away from reality and throws you into the heavens. And the only thing you could say after the liturgy when you see a poor person outside the church, God bless you. No, your blessing is not going to help. He needs food. Anyway, let's go to Genesis 1 through 4. If indeed, and the if is for you and my hearers, not for me. God's interest... Actually, he made the world like that, where you have a full symbiosis between human being, animals, and vegetation, which later I show exists fully like that only in the desert background and shepherdism. That's why God is already a shepherd when he's walking as a shepherd walks in Genesis 3. So you see, everything is already there. If you hear it in the original, then this symbiosis is not secondary. It is of the essence. That's why until then you never had God allowing the human beings to kill animals. It is only later where he gave in with the proviso that you would do that only when it is necessary the way the shepherd kills a lamb now and then to be fed with the people around him. And it's not at will, at willful will. No, you may not deal with the animals and the vegetation differently than you deal with other humans. That, friends, again, with the if, <laughs> becomes really of the essence and not curiosity. Ah, let's go back to the main subject, my salvation. I mean, are you kidding me? Well, first of all, God did not save you. He saved an entire people. 
he made them. So this geocentrism and anthropocentrism, I mean, science proved that it is not so. One uses the skin of the bladder of animals to make new valves for the human being and so on. But anyway, let's not go. Let's keep to hypertextuality. And I would like to dedicate this podcast to Professor Adam Zuski of Poland. And let me finish by reading to you the back cover of his book on Mark, with which he begins his work on the New Testament. Now, if it is under my influence or not, you'll have to ask him. He definitely knew my work. But notice the terminology. I'm not a lone ranger in this matter. This commentary demonstrates that the Gospel of Mark is a result of a consistent, strictly sequential, hypertextual reworking of the contents of three of Paul's letters, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Philippians. So notice, he chooses three and he tries to show you. Consequently, and that's the Tarazian tone, if you like. Consequently, it shows that the Markan Jesus narratively embodies the features of God's Son, who was revealed in the person, comma, teaching, comma, and course of life of Paul the Apostle. This is what I said in my book on Mark and Paul, but it's very clearly stated, which means the Jesus of the Gospels is a reflection of Paul, of the letters and the Acts. But then I believe in this sense, I am beyond Adam Zuski, at least according to my knowledge of his work, that the way Jesus is a character in the story of the Gospel, Paul also is a character in the Acts of the Apostles. So ultimately, we have a text. Do I push and say that even God is a character in the Bible? I said it in my rise of Scripture. <laughs> and this is, my friends, reflected in the liberty with which the authors move between Elohim and Yahweh. I mean, one starts asking, what's going on here? And then you have the witnesses of Jehovah saying, but actually Jehovah is not the same. It is the name of that God. Well, anyway, we have a character to the extent, and I need to say this because many people try to mimic me. A few colleagues who try to stress the scriptural Jesus, the scriptural God. But in their mouth, these two words have a different connotation than in mine, that the characters in the Bible are a projection out of the text. It's not that the author had a view. You cannot say that because you can't prove it. And God was not thrown into the text, let alone Jesus, let alone Paul. But God comes out of the text. It is the words of God and the words of Jesus that give life and not the ontological God. And here I would like to end with something I use very often. You know how I go to the Bible and I read the text by omitting something and then I show my students that when they heard the incorrect quotation, they didn't react a bit because they were happy. It sounds good, nice and correct. But the trouble is that this is not what 
the text is saying. If I would read you Isaiah 40, which is an important chapter, is the first chapter in the book of Consolation. Comfort, comfort my people, or console, console my people, says your God. And then I'm going to jump to 6, 7, 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but our God will stand forever. I have no doubt that you did not hear the original text, yet in your heart you uploaded majestic words. Now let's go to the actual text. The last verse does not say the grass withers, the flower fades, but our God will stand forever. It says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Is there a difference? Now, perhaps you're going to tell me, well, you're playing on... I'm not playing on anything. I'm saying to you that the classical theology, which is philosophical theology, so much misconstrued our heart through our ears that at the end, we don't even notice the difference between these two statements. So, here again. The text is the text, and the text is not saying at this point, I'm not talking about other verses, that the word of the Lord will stand forever. Those who have eyes to see will notice that it is really the heart of my writing the rise of Scripture, because the last chapter, if you care to look at it while you're listening to me, is the faithfulness of God's word. One may not shorten the title to make it the faithfulness of God. And that again is of import to me because God in the Bible is the character that speaks. And when this character speaks, he does not entertain a period of questions and answers. His emissary Jesus may do that in the Gospels but not God. He speaks. It's a frightening inspiration to understand the depth and the time and the work it takes to actually understand what Scripture is saying. As you mentioned, the hermeneutical key is a shortcut. It's assuming I know what Christ is or what the resurrection is or what the cross is or something like that without actually verifying that Scripture is saying what I think it's saying. This work is what inspires us to do the Bible's Literature podcast, my own study of Scripture, is the assumption that I don't understand Scripture until I verify that that's actually what Scripture is saying, and that my own opinion and my own feeling about Scripture is not adequate, but only the hard, meticulous work, what you're saying and what Adam Zewski has done, only that can actually be considered scriptural study that results in 
a true understanding of what Scripture is saying. I always have to question what I know and place what I know under Scripture and have it be subservient to Scripture, the only word that's definitive. I'm grateful for the work that you've done and the frightening inspiration. Thank you, Richard. And I would like to add something here. The outcome of that is to be so honest that in the classroom, and you heard me very often say, well, last year or three years ago, I used to say that, and even if it is not flat wrong to say that it is not that accurate now, I would put it this way. And in my latest years, I pushed even more because you know how I view the sermon as of another flavor, more central than teaching and exegesis. You are sitting in the chair of Moses. Even then, say to the parishioners, three years ago or last year when I was explaining that pericope, I said, today I would put it this way so that you would plant the seed in the mind, especially of your fans and your adoring following, that you, including your words, are not the reference. That is why I remind everybody, and I hope that it will not change in all traditions, before the sermon, you have the reading of the text. Now, we could say that. I mean, think about it. I mean, by now, everybody, even the non-Christians, had heard about the Good Samaritan or the woman at the well in John 4. I mean, you know, the readings after Pascha are very lengthy in our Orthodox Church. I mean, they are painful. Why don't you say, well, we all know the Good Samaritan or the story. Let me tell you what it means. The rubrics do not allow you. Will it change? I hope I'll be dead before then. No. And then in all traditions, we have the assessment of the people. Notice in ours, glory to you, O Lord, glory to you. In the Western traditions, we say, this is the word of the Lord after reading it. Your comment, I'm not arguing against you, obviously, I'm thankful, but you triggered in my mind this addition. Remember that hypertextuality and intertextuality and hypotextuality and even textuality deals with a given text. Father Paul, this has been a really helpful discussion. Thanks again for your willingness to spend the time and go through this. I think it's really interesting the way you present something like hypertextuality, not as a way of classifying your work, but as a tool in your tool bag. It's another way of forcing all of us to stop sitting on the chair and assessing and to get up off the chair, pick up a shovel and start digging into the content of the text. So thank you so much, Father Paul. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. Thank you both. Indeed, thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.